and welcome to the Brookie and Berger podcast. That was the one and only Tom Jones, Wales's finest, uh, giving his rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone. I don't think he ever actually recorded it, but that was from his own TV show back in the late 1960s. You'd remember that well, Darren Burgess. Remember it well, Brookie. Tell me, has anybody recorded that song who's under the age of 70? <laughs> well, um... Tricky one. Not sure. Not sure. I'll, uh, I'll work on that one. Thanks, but uh, they don't make music like they used to, Burjo, is my theory. So uh, we'll go with the oldies. I've still got a few more good oldies to come. My favourite uh, hasn't come yet, so uh, I'm still hoping for that. But uh, that was the choice of our, uh, our guest for this week, and perhaps you'd like to introduce him. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually sitting alongside uh, distinguished Professor Aaron Coote from, uh, from many walks of life, but currently at uh, University of Technology, Sydney, Cootsy. G'day, Welcome. G'day, Burjo. Brookie. Uh, Aaron. Absolute privilege to have you on here, mate. Can we just start, and most of our listeners are, are going to have read at least 180 of your 5,000 uh, publications, but just give us a bit of a background to yourself. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a professional sports nerd, as I call myself, but um, yeah, work here at UTS. Join the club. Yeah, I started a long time ago. Um, like many of your guests, I've heard, listened to many of your podcasts, uh, a failed athlete, you know, obviously a sporting enthusiast without the ability. Um, and many years ago, sport and exercise science degree uh, in the early 90s, wanted to see how I could use it, trying to figure out how to use a sport and exercise science degree. It was challenging then, as it is now. Um, followed my passion and um, did my internship at the Brisbane Bears, would you believe wow, it? Wow, really? Brisbane Bears in 95, uh, just before they they turned in the mighty Brisbane Lions. Um, and during that time, I thought we should be able to apply some of the stuff that, that they're teaching us at uni. I've got to be able to apply this into a career in sport somehow. And um, long one thing led to another. did a master's um, whilst I was doing that, working, played AFL, but also, you know, worked in um, basketball at sort of the semi-professional level, rugby league in the QRL. They became a part of my PhD cohort. Um, did a PhD looking at... I suppose early monitoring training load. I was really trying to find over training or overreaching in rugby league players, and little did I know that team sport athletes probably don't do enough to, to get that. But that's where I got these tools and measures to monitor um, what they were training, how they're training, uh, how they're responding to training. Um, and when I finished my PhD, lucky enough to get a job here at UTS, early 2000s. Few, one thing led to another and um, got an opportunity at Parramatta Eels through a connection from the Queensland Rugby League Club I was working at when I did my PhD. Um, got the opportunity with Hayden Knowles at the Parry Eels. And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, and we crossed paths then. I yes, think I went to the Tower. Yeah, um, and uh, through him, met John Quinn at Essendon, got to work yep. at Essendon whilst I was my real, real day job, my real job as I said at the university, but my unreal jobs were working in sport. And so I had 15 years in the AFL at Essendon and Carlton uh, until COVID hit. Um, yeah. But lucky enough, a lot of the research that we did, which followed on from my PhD of trying to measure what athletes do, how they respond to it, how can we use that to improve the training process over time, um, led to a, a lot of work. I'm lucky enough now to have you know, done a lot of work at different leagues, organisations, clubs around the world in different sports. And got a lot of insights where we now do projects with many of those clubs, organisations, and during the last 20 years, supervised 35 PhD students wow. in that area. Many of those have had good careers, which yes. is probably the most rewarding thing of anything I've done. Um, we might talk about that later. I don't know yeah, how yeah, that goes. Um, but that's a bit of a background. So yeah. you know, university guy, but I 
my dad was a farmer and he, he, he didn't think that sports science, that's not a job, right? And university's definitely not a job. So you better go and do something practical. And yeah. so trying to make this science practical, usable in sport, I suppose, has been the mission of the last 20 odd years. Yeah, it's, uh, probably that's where we'll start, mate, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, I must say, I've just had a tour of the unbelievable facilities here at, at UTS that you've developed and, and been in charge of. Um, how can you make, and a lot of our listeners would be in sports medicine yep. uh, or sports performance, how um, can we best make use of the research that you put out? Yeah, well, read it for a start, interpret yeah. it properly. That's probably a good yeah, thing. Um, don't just read the abstract or the Twitter. Yeah. Um, but making use of research requires a lot of well-developed skills, right? You just can't read a research paper and apply. You need to read many research papers. You know, as research is synthesis, developing complex um, problem solving, critical synthesis. That's where the skills that we have, rather than actually I see now sports scientists quite often at the lower level skills are just putting a device, downloading a device and making a decision red or green. But the skills is, is actually interpreting information from various sources. And some of that is data and some of that's interrelations with people. Um, and I think it needs to be contextualised. The research that we have, the, the skillful people can contextualise the information and apply it to their setting. And that's just like happens in any field, right? But I think we can oversimplify what it is. It's very complex systems we work in. And my yeah. research, our research, contributes a little bit to the understanding, but there's a lot more than than, than our research. But um, Yeah, you know, true. And I'll, I'll resist the temptation to jump on the soapbox while we've got you here, but um, you're mainly known, your main area of research is, is monitoring training loads, yeah. and, and there's we won't go specifically into, say, acute chronic next, so I'm going to jump around a little bit, but of all the research, and you said 35, is it, PhD? Students. Students, yeah, somewhere. Like um, yeah. What can the listeners out there take from monitoring and uh, what should they be targeting and what should they not be targeting? Well, you've got to have a framework to work with on. So there's no magic measure. So there's no one best measure. So yep. what you need is a framework and really it needs to fit into the tools that we have fit into a, a system. So obviously, Berger, you'd plan training, right? Yep. Yeah, and you'd plan, you know, what you plan to do. Yep. Now, the first step is in monitoring, you need to measure did you deliver training as planned? Yeah. I don't know if your plan's any good or not, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and to be honest, you probably, you know, you've got a fair idea from experience, but we don't know what the best program is. Agreed. But you have a, this works in this context. Yep. The first mistake you can make is not deliver it as planned or when you change it, know how much you change it. It's fine yeah. to change it from your plan, right? But yep. there's no perfect system. But also, say so that's the first thing, and that's where we use the external load measure. The wearables come into, did I deliver as intended? Yep. We can also use that information later to know when I do this, you know, when I do this session, this is what I'm going to get. But in terms of monitoring our athletes responding to training, that's probably, in my opinion, the most important thing. So we can all go and do the same session, the same external load, but respond differently. And it's how we acutely perceive that session, but also respond later to that session that gives us information as a practitioner that can be useful. Joe Bloggs is not coping. No, Henry Smith is coping. And so that we get the internal load. And I know your soapbox, you've talked about RPEs a bit. I'm a, I take the opposite position. I actually yep. think that RPEs are very valuable if yep. done systematically, yep. measured properly, 
um, and you know, read the instructions for a start is a, is a good 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 place to start with in using RP. It is a lot of work, yep. but it, it does work. So using the perception of the internal load to the external load. Yep. Hopefully I've kept the, the listeners with me so far. Yeah, yeah. Then, um, that's the first start. So individual people in the same squad will respond differently to the same session. Yes. So you know who's coping more or less. And then the next day or the, these okay, we use tools like wellness, heart rate variability, any kind of physiological measure, the response measures. How did they respond to that stimulus yep. is the next thing. Now, over time, most of the time they, t- they don't tell you much, but over the longer period when you're starting to get abnormal, abnormal, unusual data or changes in data, that's where you can get inferences. Yep. When you, but you've got to know what you planned, did you do it? And how do they respond to it? And then this is the feedback system. Um, and it takes time, it takes effort, and there's value. Now, saying that, uh, we need to be really careful of over-monitoring as well. Because if we over-monitor and we take away the um, the experience of the coach or the performance manager of observing and making these mistakes and not learning for themselves, relying on an external system, you don't develop expertise. Yes. And expertise is what someone in your position's paid for. And you, you don't develop expertise without observing it. So it's a mixture of the expertise in designing and delivering a program, but also this monitoring can give feedback because what happens when experts go unchecked is that yeah. they go uncontrolled and they get carried away with themselves because they're, they're experts, of course, overconfidence, and they can make mistakes. Yep. So we need an objective system and we need the expertise. I don't think the system's any good without an expert. So you need an expert and, you know, and making informed decisions, and they are informed decisions because yourself, coaches, you know, people, performance managers develop this expertise and knowledge over a period of time. It's irreplaceable. Your education, either through formal education or informal education, yeah. is what helps develop that in planning or training. We just want to have a quality control system in the background to help check your judgments. Um, doesn't mean they change them. Yeah. It just helps you. It stops you getting carried away, you know. And, and yeah. so you have maturity, knowledge, and expertise, and, and that's critical. Yeah. But we need the checks and monitoring system. Does, does that make sense? It does. Um, it does, and I agree. I absolutely agree that I think the balance of internal or the re- relationship between internal and external load at an individual level has been the thing that I have most um, adapted to. Yeah. Um, and however you pick your internal external load, as long as it's consistent yeah. and reliable and valid, um, is a thing that I've used. Um, I guess flowing on from the monitoring, we don't want to necessarily get too technical. That's not generally what we're about, but yeah. we'll take advantage of the person who wrote the book on it, basically. Um, it, I, we walked past uh, Franco's yeah. office. He's yeah. not in, which is disappointing. Yeah, I would have got him to, uh, to, to, to get a guest appearance here. But... Um, is there room, forget acute chronic, because yeah. you guys have recently put out a paper which, which questions that, is there room for a one measure yeah. algorithm, yeah. anything like that? Because plenty of people have tried yeah. um, and acute chronic gained the most traction, but obviously there's a fight back. Talk me through that. Oh, we're chasing unicorns there. Yeah, okay. You know, you're chasing unicorns, absolutely. Um, there's no one measure. There's no one system. It's got to fit your culture. You've got to fit your sport, and it's got to fit your decision system. So, um, obviously, you hit on critical things. Measures need to be valid. They need to be reliable. Mm-hmm. And they also need to be usable. Um, so there isn't one measure. There isn't one metric. It's very attractive, right, to fit to yeah. us. If we could have one measure that could reduce our injuries, mm. imagine that. Mm. We could have one measure that can make sure we're ready to perform. We'd all be living in houses. Yeah. Brookie's house, yeah, absolutely. No, um, no. Um, it doesn't exist. 
Darren. Um, it, it's like obviously, I suppose a part of my work early on when I started my PhD, I was going to find a cure for overtraining. Yeah, yeah. Little did I find out it didn't exist yeah. in rugby league players anyway. Um, but but I think what we have learnt about is you need a system and you need valid and reliable measures. You don't, you don't need too many either. Yes. You need a system yep. first of all, and you just need something to check your decisions. And I'm not carried on. Too carried away of what's what's the best, right? Because we can get caught in semantics. Because yep. I don't think it depends. The answer is it depends, and that's probably the most uncomfortable decision. Yeah, Everyone yeah. wants the, the right answer. Yeah, yeah. I think I guess some of the frustrations I have is when you hear a lot of podcasts or social mm. media, I'm speaking to a lot of people, and they say, "No, I'm not going to take GPS because it's not quite reliable," or "No, I'm not going to," and and it's almost and I use my eye, and it's almost a cop out uh, to promote laziness. Yes, that they're not going to actually. Um, use those as support mechanisms yep. for their eye or for the coach's eye, or whatever it might be. So there is yep. that 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 bare minimum that you ought to do. Well, I think you need to have a plan, know what you want to do, yep. and see did you deliver it as that, and how did they respond. And you can choose what measures that do those as yep. you please, because yep. they're going to be different for different sports. Like yep. we're talking about footy mostly here, right? Yeah. But it depends. You go to gymnastics, it's going completely American football. Yep. Um, no, yeah, uh, okay. It depends on your sport, what's most appropriate. Uh, and I think it is attractive uh, to find the sort of mm -hmm. holy grail, and uh, particularly as an development of sports science in the last 15 years, yeah. we've made some promises we can't live up to. Um, well, I fear that. Like, we've got to embrace uncertainty, understand there's uncertainty there, embrace it, be comfortable with that. Yep. But what we can do is we can minimise the errors that we make or just ask questions that let you check yourself, let the yep. experts check themselves. And what... Um Brookie, you can jump in any time, otherwise we'll just keep going. But what, <laughs> no, you're doing well. What, the sports science profession took a hit in Australia in uh, 2012 with the Essendon yeah. sort of saga. And I reckon COVID is bringing that around a little bit. Having lived through that, you mentioned it yeah. earlier that, that your consultancy at an AFL club was sort of Stop, dissolved yeah. Um, yeah. because of it. Um, certainly, we've all taken massive you know, pay cuts and yep. lost staff and all Good, that sort of yeah. stuff. How can we um, add value to an organisation or demonstrate to an organisation rather than just saying, um, we can tell you that uh, Joe Smith ran 10 kilometres and jumped 80 times, who would care? Yes, I completely agree. Um, and I think we've devolved some of the fundamental skills down to the priorities of what we do. Like the we've done low-hanging fruit. We've GPS monkeys are calling for another one of another word. You know, you do the simple stuff, reporting on metrics. And sports science is a lot more than that. It's decision making. It's solving complex problems. It's the internal quality control unit. As now, maybe I'm a nerd here, right? And, and I don't get carried away with my, but, but, you know, that's what we do with internal audits. We do the audits. We assess um, the measurement precision of what we do, and we should be a part of the education of coaches um, and support staff in clubs. I, I, that's what my perception is. You know, we should mm -hmm. R&D, education, um, ethical practice, of course. But I think we've limited because the attractiveness of these simple measures that we can reduce injury, that the focus has been come on, well, we'll go and measure this, we'll reduce our injury this way, but then... Right. Organisations are pretty smart. Mm. You do this for a few years and injury rates don't go down. They're going to ask the question, right? So we better not make promises that we can't keep. Mm. And we're probably making promises on complex systems that we don't know the answers to. Um, and I think we need to get back to you know, using science. The science in sports yeah. science is, is probably what 
can be missing. Um, yep. And just measuring something's not science. Yep. That's how you use the information to, to answer the questions in a systematic way. And can, uh, last one before I throw one to you, Brookie, um, can we, um, we spoke earlier about valid measures. Um, one of the issues uh, that we have, those of us who are, I guess, in the field more than we're in the lab, is trying to use validated measures. And I, certainly I've been criticised, many of us have been criticised in the past. They're not valid. My argument back is, eh, they've been valid in 25 years in doing that. I know that this yeah. works. Uh, each way has its own flaws. Yeah. As someone who's crossed the boundaries many times, how can we solve this? Well, the side is easy. That's the role of sports scientists, is to do the internal validation. Yeah. Right? It doesn't have to be peer-reviewed, published. Good quality scientists. You can do your own internal validation on measures. How, how might I do that? Let's say um, I, I'm with the Melbourne Demons and you come to me and say uh, heart rate variability using um, some sort of new technology. Go and, uh, yeah. go and um, you, you're telling me it works. You publish papers. How can I do that? Okay, so you might say something that measures short-term heart rate variability using infrared, and yeah. I want to say, well, does it measure what you think it measures? So the first thing is you want to do is compare it back to the gold standard. Yep. So you want to go and compare that to gold standard heart rate variability measures and see if you're getting similar measures. Can I rely on a published paper that's done that for me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So yes. I don't have to go and do it? I can. No, you can absolutely go and exist, and, but yep. you need to be able to source that quality information, yes. interpret the quality of that study. Yep. And that's what those people who have postgraduate education um, yep. and training, and for any field the same, is teaching you about the research skills. Yep. That's what the sports scientist yeah. offers. You know, no point. I remember you did a PhD once, and I, I did, thought, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think I, I, I uh, had some dodgy assessments. Yeah, yeah, uh, assessments were very dodgy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you, you uh, so Kuti marked my PhD and was unbelievably thorough, even though a lot of the stuff had been published. You still made me resubmit it, mm. and right, rightfully so, because you know I published a while ago because I'm old. Yes. But uh, uh, yeah, I think that critical understanding of research is is massive, and that's massively overlooked. Well, it's the science in sports science, yep. and so you know, and that's uncomfortable to develop those skills yeah, yeah. takes time. You know, you know how long it takes. It takes time yep. to do. Um, and so you need to invest a lot of time to develop that expertise. But don't get carried away with your expertise as well. Just because you can measure something or understand, yep. you need to make that contextual understanding of the information that we have. And can you, can it be validated on your own group? Absolutely, yeah. And so if I'm looking at the short-term heart rate variability, I've, uh, I'm satisfied that the research is, uh, has validated it correctly. Yep. And I want to implement it with my group, uh, how do I then go and make sure that it's measuring what I want it to well, measure? Well, the validation should come out of your validation paper. The next thing you have, what's a meaningful change in what we're measuring, yeah, right? Okay. And so then what you want to understand is what the reliability, the test, retest. So how does it measure the same thing, doing the same thing twice? And then what you understand is, well, is that noise, we'll call that noise, useful? Is it too noisy? So heart rate variability, the criticism is it's very noisy. Yep. Well, you want to see how much does it normally change in a normal environment. So when your players are measuring the heart rate variability, if that's the thing you're measuring from week to week, does it change more than the noise in the test? And last thing. Yeah. Sorry, this technical is, guys. Sorry, guys, is, getting technical. Yeah, this is, no, this is really relevant, I reckon, because it, using heart rate variability, which we didn't plan on using, but yeah. here we are. Um, I don't even use it, but yeah. Anyway. No, no. <laughs> um, I know of clubs, and I have done this myself, where the only time we're going to get the players um, still to use something like heart rate variability might be in the team meeting. Yep. 
And so we've said to the players, there's three minutes, four minutes, yeah. whatever, uh, at nine o'clock every morning, you're going to sit here quietly for three minutes while we get your heart rate variability, and then the team meeting is going to start. Right. So uh, when I've sent this information to heart rate variability experts, they yeah. said, no, we don't know whether they've had caffeine, all that sort of yeah. stuff. But in this environment, that is the best we're going to get. So is you, that acceptable? Well, you're going, what is going to be acceptable is making decisions based on the noise you have. You're going to get more noise doing it that way yep. than when they first wake. Right? Yep. But getting a 40 guys or a 20 to 25 to do it when they first wake, good luck, won't yep. happen. Yep. So that's practical what you're doing, but you'll probably get more noise in that. That means yep. that you're going to have to get a bigger change in the school before you get a real detection. Yep. So is it... Pure, perfect? No, it's imperfect. It's you know, it's it's a sort of back of the envelope science time yeah, to yeah, speak. Yeah. But that's all you can deal with. Yeah. And so you've got to fit your system to the environment you work within and understand yep. where your signals and noises are and everything you measure. That's getting a bit technical, guys. Sorry, but no, um, no, if no, we no. can understand that, yep. that's how we can apply practical sports science. I think the next step in that process is to enable publications and editors and reviewers to accept yep. that. There are going to be limitations because we have done this in elite populations. Yeah, we've recently done a PhD through through Carlton. The last one we did was doing exactly that, doing yeah, okay. you know real world reliability and validity. The next thing we need to make sure though is we haven't talked about is does our heart rate variability or measure X does it relate to the outcome we want yeah, the outcome? Yeah. So does heart rate variability actually relate to performance, to fitness, to well wellness or whatever we're trying to measure? Yeah. Um, anyway, getting very complicated, yeah, Darren. Yeah. I don't want to lose the listeners. On well, this. Uh, you know, that's an interesting point because Bookie uh, wrote the book on sports medicine, and one of the things I guess that was really prevalent, and he's a big uh, component of, is screening. And we know from some of the um, you know, some of the research of Roll Barr and those yeah. sorts of people that screening yeah, may not be related. Now, I know at Arsenal, through some of the the work that people before me did. There was a great screening system set up with five years of regular screening data. We've, we've got a data scientist to come in and, and uh, do some uh, check some relationships between injuries and performance. That's as homogenous a group you'll get. as you'll get. Seven years of data where they played on average, you know, 45 games a year. Um, nothing, not a thing. But so. But did you use that information to inform decisions before injury occurred? And now this That's is the argument. These measures are you use measures for an outcome measure, performance or injury, or process to inform yeah. process. And any practitioner who gets a change in a variable of interest, whatever they're measuring, and they're going to get a signal, they're not going to wait to get an injury. No. Right? That you're going to change. So you need to do a randomised control trial. We all know that's not going to happen in yep. elite athletes. Um, so how do we prove it? In well, it's very, very challenging. Yeah. That's very, very challenging. And that's um, some discussions that have been around the chronic workload ratio. Yeah. That's the yeah. same issues. Any measure, you know, I don't want to make it about injury, or, but yeah. it, it's very complex in elite athletes. But let's be honest. We can only be judged basically on injury, potentially improve physical performance yeah. in games, but there's so many other physical development. Like and physical development, that's it. That's all we can be judged on. Yep. Injury is perhaps the most yep. tangible. Yeah, and like we've tried to do really well controlled studies in professional athletes, but we couldn't have a control group and got criticised from no real control group. We know yep. two experimental groups, but no one who did no intervention. Yeah. And like, that's unethical. Anyway, yeah. we're, I'm getting carried off research no, methods no, here, Virgil. Right. I don't no, know if you want to talk about research methods. I understand. <laughs> now, I'm obviously interested in the injury side of things. Um, 
uh, as well as the performance, but particularly the injury side and, and that relationship between training load and injury. And, and and maybe take us through your you know your sort of historical thought processes about uh, about that, Aaron, about you know what you used to think, you know, and and uh, and what other people sort of thought, and and uh, where you've got to now about uh, that relationship, because obviously that's a key. You know, preventing injury is the, is the holy grail, really, isn't it? I mean, we'd all uh, you know we'd all love to be able to do that, and uh, and yet still perform at a high level, and uh, and you're never going to completely uh, reduce injury, but we'd like to reduce them certainly. And I always quote the uh, the issue of of hamstring injuries, which is the most common injury that we uh, see in the in the various football codes and so on. We now know you know ten times more about hamstring injuries than we did twenty years ago, but the rates are exactly the same. So. Yeah. You know, have we made any progress? So take us through, you know, your sort of historical sort of journey, if you like, through training load and injury, and, and what your thinking has been along the way. Yeah, I think first of all, undoubtedly, training load has a role to play in injury. That that's undoubtable, and changes in training load definitely have a, a role to play in injury. Um, clearly, it's just like you know, medicine or any drug, right? It's the hormesis effect. Will, you know, not enough is is not good, and too much is not good. It's just whether or not we can say with good precision. Um, when an injury is going to occur on the basis of training dose alone. It's probably a little bit naive, I think. But I also undoubtedly accept, not accept, it's, it's common knowledge, been known for a long, long time, that training load is essential for injury prevention, control of the dose. Um, you know, you go back to Jack Daniels and stuff in running. Um, and, and I was originally, Peter, interested in training load and performance. Yeah. It was probably even more complex because measuring performance is harder than injury. Um, but um, so our original work for years, I'd, we'd used training load in a part of a monitoring system, uh, and I was not, to be honest, so interested in injury myself. Other, others were interest, interested in injury. I had a look in the data that we had at the time, and it just seemed too messy to me. So I left it alone for a, a long time and let others do the work in that area. Um, I was more interested in sort of understanding, controlling the process of training, to to. You know, readiness to perform, I suppose, is what I was interested in. But more recently, um, the, the hot topic, I suppose, is the putrechronic workload um, ratio, which like it makes sense to me. Is that you know you change load too quickly, you're going to get an injury or in, increased risk of injury. Um, I suppose is more appropriate to, to say. Um, the issues that we have had with this is that the measures themselves. Um, First of all, uh, it just seemed too convenient that something so simple in a very complex system um, that controlled training load, you would reduce your injuries in systems that are all, already well-developed. Well like Burjo, you know, running programs for 20 years, I'm pretty sure that with before the acute chronic workload ratio, you knew the importance of progressions. Yes. Yeah, and I, I hope so. Yeah. I, I hope yeah. so. And I think experienced practitioners knew what happened, in my perspective, this came out become very popular because it's attractive. It said that we could reduce injury, and like everybody would jump on that because it's our duty to to reduce injury. Um, but when we unpack the science behind it, uh, the concept's a decent concept in terms of changing and training loads of risk, but the actual metric itself is flawed. And I'm, I'm not sure which papers you read, but we've got a paper just being published in Sports Medicine now. It actually shows the ratio measure itself is completely flawed. So and the, the, the mathematics The is mathematics flawed. is yeah. flawed. Sorry, yeah, sorry, too technical. The mathematics is flawed, and you just shouldn't use it from basic mathematical principles. Forget about the concept of load and injury dose. Um, and the more the issue was that, you know, the concept 
I understand how it developed, right? It's very attractive and it's not wrong, the concept of it, but it's more the measure itself, Peter, that we have the issue with. Um, and so training loads, dose definitely, control, measure, look for changes in training load, don't use a ratio score. Of course, be aware that large changes in dose are going to increase risk for those, particularly with low training base. And also be aware that, you know, you need to have consistent and solid training um, to develop strong, robust and protected athletes. I'm not sure that, that answers your question, but that's the, oh, the concept behind where I come from. I'm, I'm going to take it, Brookie, and interrupt and put Kuti on the spot and say, based on that and your years of research and working with some incredible people in the field, um, I give you the keys to the Melbourne Demons, for argument's sake, mm -hmm. and don't say... It'd be, it'd be an improvement. Yeah, it'd be an improvement, yeah. Um, and, and say to you uh, what measures external and internal should we take? I, don't give me your research. He's already shaking his head because he's going to say, well, I'm just going to depend I'll on the population. You, yeah, 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 I'll give you uh, a depends I want, answer. I want... Uh, yeah, right, yeah. What are you going to take, assuming that, um, you know, the, the what would I use? and everything, what would you use? What, Darren Burgess resources or Aaron Coote's resources? Aaron Coote's resources. Uh, okay. Um, give me that. GPS, I think, is useful. External yep. load. I like RPE yep. um, if it's done properly yep. and by the rules. And I'd use a simple wellness, not wellness, I'd use a soreness, something like soreness um, mm -hmm. measure. And that's simple as you need to get by with what you need to get by because you've got what you planned, how you responded, you know, how the, how the internal load and then how you responded to it. Yep. You can add other stuff on that if you want to, depending on your resources that are available. But that gives so me... with an AFL club? So with yeah. a, with a um, semi-professional club, most of them can afford a version of GPS yeah, that's what I and do. RPE. So and that's, what, yeah, do that. And, that's and, and, and that's an, and for an a, athlete a, response a club? I'd use, that's all I, I would use, to be honest, to do it yeah. properly, depending on any staff, like yeah. pre-COVID or post-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what in terms of the resources available. Yeah. The more resources available, the more likely you are to get more insights. You know, you could do a neuromuscular screening tool, yeah. absolutely. Um, you could use some – I don't use counter-movement jump myself. Others do. Yeah. But um, you've got to have real expertise to use that. Yeah, yeah you know, I, like, I agree. I've got a PhD student at Quantock at the moment, Dave Howarth, is fantastic. And you know, he can he can really see insights because I'm not a biomechanist, right? So yes. he sees a lot more insights out of counter-movement jump than I do as a trained physiologist. Yeah. So make sure you pick the measures you train for yeah, yeah, interpret point. properly and can i can i just jump in there you've mentioned a couple of times aaron rpes and doing them properly yeah tell yeah. us tell us about what do you mean by that well rating a perceived exertion um peter is you know we all know gunner ball come up the rating of perceived exertion scale there's a couple of scales there's a six to twenty scale there's a category ratio 10 scale and the category ratio 100 scale now these scales it is pieces of paper of numbers and anchors written on them but these were measured, you know, validated using psychometric measures, scientific measures. It's, even though it's a piece of paper with words on it, there's been decades of research validating the tools and instructions of how to use them. And what I see quite often, Peter, is people have a 1 to 10 scale, just numbers 1 to 10 linear, no weighting. They change the anchors, the words that they use next to the numbers. And, and these may or may not be valid, but they haven't been validated. So why not go off the tools that have been validated? Um, and so when you're using it properly, simply, first of all, familiarise your athletes with the scale. Like, this is a scale. This is how it works. 
the dot at the top means you know you can go greater than 10 you can have a, a higher than you can give a number above 10 if you're using the 10 point scale um, and when you measure it you use the descriptor describe how the session was then use the number you don't have to use a whole number you can use a fraction of a number these are simple things that seem pedantic i accept but they're easy to do and you may as well do them properly um, I've been lucky enough to, to go to many places around the world, and I've seen more non-validated scales than I've seen validated scales. <laughs> so now, they weren't built with colours on them. They weren't built with pictures on them um, fundamentally. And so I just, you know, I'm a purist and go back to do it. If you can do it, might as well do it properly. It takes just as much effort. And what about, um, I notice in, in any of the discussions here, you've not mentioned heart rate at all. Yeah. How does that fit into the... Very important. No, we use heart rate for measuring aerobic load, right? So I use heart rate for measuring the aerobic dose. Um, and very important in pre-season. One of the issues we have is with compliance in the sports that people I work with is you, know, you lose data and you get compliance. But saying that, um, when we've had full compliance, there's some years we've had full compliance, has been very useful information. And uh, any derivatives of heart rate in particular? Oh, I just, well, I just keep it simple, right? I just keep it oh, Personally, I don't know the answer to this. This is yeah, the yeah, I've no, found no, no, used no. answer useful. You used, uh, I like using time spent in a you know, red zone above yep. 90% of heart rate as an aerobic dose. Yep. But we also know as we get you know more fatigued, particularly in the Australian pre-season before Christmas, you can't get the heart rate up, so to speak, and those you can't hit those zones even though you've got the stimulus. So yeah. it can be a measure of uh, overreaching, yep. um, really good indicator of aerobic stimulus you're providing. And, you know, and I would definitely use it in return to play um, and use it if you can. The problem is, it's in my experience, players find it annoying. Yeah, and, yeah. Until we improve the wearable, if you could get that information, it's definitely not useless information. I'm going to throw team sport. Throw a couple of quick questions, quick fire questions at Kuti while he's on a roll, Brookie, and then you take over. Go for it. Fascinated by that concept you just mentioned of a heart rate, even though the stimulus is there, the heart rate cannot get up yeah, yeah. and over that. Yeah, parasympathetic. Yep. Training, yeah. What what do you put that down to, and how do you recognise it? Oh, you, you look at look in their eyes. You can see it pretty early. Yeah. Um, you look at yep. the, yeah, no. I remember what, the Dubai camp. We did a submax test every day on the place, yeah. and they just could not reach anywhere near. You couldn't you couldn't go about now early in heat. There's a couple of things. If you go for your, your Dubai camp, yep. you can get plasma volume expansion. The heart rate won't go up, so that's a good thing. So yeah, you're getting okay. more fluid, yep. or you can get hard training, and you can get adrenal sort of insufficiency, or you get you know you can't get the, the, the uh, parasympathetic um, uh, stimulus yep. to drive the heart rate up, okay. and therefore your heart rate won't increase at the rate that you expect, even um, though the workload is, is there. High yeah, yeah, it's out. usually associated with perception of fatigue. Yes. So the perception of fatigue is a, is a good one to have with that. Yep. So if your heart rate's not going up, but you're not fatigued, that's a good thing. Yep. But if your heart rate's staying low and you are fatigued, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. Yeah. And so following on for that, you've said a couple of times now you don't think overreaching oh, training occurs no. in team sports? Overreaching does definitely occur. Okay. Definitely. But overtraining syndrome per se, you've got to – I just don't train enough, yep. um, to be honest. And you look through the literature, um, and I did this many years ago when I did my PhD, you look at those of true overtraining are looking at, you know, 30 hours a week of training and yep. team sport athletes are lucky to do 10, yep. you know, if you count the pure training hours. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they train intensely, undoubtedly, but to get pure overtraining syndrome – um, very unlikely, and the care is there to stop that from happening now. It's more the endurance sports or you know, those those individuals where that, that's likely to occur, 
Oh, I've never seen it. it. Doesn't say it doesn't happen. But overreaching is common. Like, yeah. yeah. Whether it's planned or unplanned, um, usually planned. Like any any football club in Australia before Christmas, the last session before Christmas. Some after, I reckon. As yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Gets a bit hotter yep. In the, well. January. Yeah, that, that's normal in the yep. part of the training process, and you want that. Yeah. You know, because okay. you're driving the stimulus. So don't be afraid of oh, no. overreaching. Yep. Don't be afraid of fatigue, Darren. Yes. Don't be Good. afraid of soreness, Darren. Good don't. All this stuff is not to stop you training. Yeah. You just understand what you're doing when you're training. And I think the misuse of it, and there's talk about using the science behind it, you need to know not only science itself, but training theory and, you know, what you're trying to achieve. And in the context of that, it's not all about physical either. Sometimes it's technical, tactical. We'll add the, the other layer of complexity across the top of it. Yep. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you've been to a lot of successful clubs and different clubs, mm. obviously. Uh, saw you at Arsenal when we were there and a lot of global clubs. You've done a lot of work with Juventus and and others, uh, common thread behind successful performance and medical team. Don't worry about yep. whether the club's good uh, or bad. Good, good leadership. Yep. Good leadership. And now I've got my biases here, right? So I like yep. the scientific approach. Yep. So those that embrace a quality control approach, they're not just measuring everything, having a reason for measuring it, understanding what they're measuring and fitting into a system. Now, they've all got their own different systems and their own measures, but they have a reason, a well-justified reason for doing it. And I'd say that, now this is unusual, but the staff also need to be appropriately experienced and qualified. And all the ones I've seen are really qualified. They invest in people who've invested in themselves. Um, But I have seen, obviously, people just measure a lot of things and they don't really understand the purpose of why they are measuring it. Um, and that's probably one of the mistakes that I see quite often. They measure it because they think they should measure it, yeah, but I yeah. don't know why they should measure it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last one for me in the rapid fire round. Yeah. Uh, muscle strength testing devices, you know, an oddball, grind yeah. bar, those. No, I don't mind them. Yep. I don't mind them if they're part of a system, understand what they do measure, how you're going to interpret them. Um, one of the issues is in, in sports with a lot of players is getting good quality measures. Yes. And I'm not going to make fun of physios because some of my good mates are physios, but geez, they're shit outs at my measuring stuff. So um, no, that's just a generalisation. Yes. Um, very unfair. But, um, but, but making sure when you measure using these tools that you're doing it properly. But you know how hard it is? How is it hard to get a groin bar measure oh, of 45 yeah, players yeah, in the absolutely. program in a week? Yep. In a good quality pre-training measure. Yeah, very tough to do. Very tough to do. And well, so, what I don't accept is people saying too tough, won't do it. No, I know, I agree. And the laziness comes into it. No, too hard, too hard. Yeah, and look, this is, it's like my bugbear with measuring RPE. It takes just as much to do it properly. Yes. Like, might as well just take the effort and yep. get a plan and see what you can do. Do less, better, or, you know, do it, whatever you do, do it at a high quality. Yeah. And that's been one of our missions is try to do, not a research lab at all, but try to measure things properly, but don't try to measure everything. I think that's, uh, again, one of the skills that the sports scientist ought to bring to the team yeah. is ensuring that quality control yeah. aspect. So things that we've got rid of that you may use that didn't fit in our system, we've tried heart rate variability, yep. we've tried crit and kinase, blood yep. measures, we've tried all these things, but they either weren't. They either might be useful but not practical. Mm-hmm. The blood measures took time to come back. Mm-hmm. No, they weren't useful anyway, but in my opinion. Yeah, yes. um, but, you know, they were invasive or they took time. We yeah. couldn't get the noise out of the measure. So they just didn't fit our system. It wasn't that they weren't useful. They just didn't fit the system that we were working on. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's the job of the yeah. sports scientist. Yeah. And that's okay for it to work at the Melbourne Demons but not Carlton? Yeah, think? or if that depends on your system, Virgil, yeah. and what you value and where you put your time and your effort into making your decisions. Yeah. So that's where it comes from, matching the system to the expertise. Oh, there's not one way of doing things. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. So, Brookie, 
I'll hand it over to you for for a couple now. No, one thing I'm interested in is is, is the red flags. I mean, we, you guys talked about preseason, uh, you know, long hard preseasons, and what are the things that worry the signs that worry about an individual player that uh, you think they're uh, they're overcooked or uh, they're, they're, there's an injury about to happen or uh, uh, what well, some of the practical measures? You know, you mightn't have all the sophisticated uh, equipment to measure everything, but uh, what are some of the things that get you worried? Well. You can see it generally in Malay's behaviour for a start. That's what the good ones do. Mm. Um, but when you've got large groups of people, Peter, uh, Peter um, the athlete response measures, like we call them wellness questionnaires. One of the issues we've just done some work recently, we've just published it this year, is most of the wellness questionnaires that we use are not validated. Mm. They've been made up in the backyard of some football club and then published. Um, but those wellness questionnaires generally are pretty good to give you insights as a conversation leader. Um, in particular, soreness, continual soreness, fatigue are the ob obvious ones, and that's no rocket surgery there, right, to figure out that someone's yep. continuous sore or fatigue, that there's an issue. Um, others others you can see, um, we've had a couple using um, heart rate tests, submaximal heart rate tests are very difficult to do well, but we've seen a couple of good case studies of really high-profile players who, you know, reporting everything was okay, but they couldn't get their heart rate up, so to speak, had a bit of fatigue, um, you can see from their behaviour that was a, a useful one, but you do a lot of measures before you get a useful one there. It depends how much resource you're willing to put out, put into it. Um, if you're training a small group of athletes, you may not need all of that. You just need the conversations and the relationships. But when you're getting big, large groups of athletes, this is when these simple tools done well can be useful as conversation starters. Yeah, I agree. Right. Now, I'd like to turn attention to coaches and um, obviously you've uh, you both have we've both worked with uh, a lot of elite coaches in the last 20 years uh, some more successful than others um, the challenge of, of selling sports science to the coach um, tell us about your experiences there yeah, Peter, it's a really challenging – from when I started, I was sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I think the first coach I worked with in the AFL was Kevin Sheedy. He was really open mind. Um, in the NRL, it was um, Brian Smith, um, who was really – sort of – he was really open-minded. Brian was willing to try things. Different coaches take different approaches, and some are really sort of data-driven, and some – uh, feel and you need to see where you fit in the system. Sometimes you go back under the tip of the iceberg and work away in the background and don't put yourself front and centre. I don't think anybody I've worked with says we don't want it. It's just the level that they want the information and whether how much they use it to inform their decision making. My, my biggest work is probably with the high performance managers and even high performance managers use it to a different level. And I've been lucky enough to work with a variety of high performance managers in different sports some are really data-driven or early, some are more data-driven in early parts of their career, some less so in later parts of their career. Um, but again, it comes back to understanding the system we're working for and where we need it. I think convincing the club, the organisation, is very um, easy to show them where data is really important for risk management um, and just you know, keeping records of their players. That, that's important. How much we can use it to drive decision-making depends on the approaches and the philosophies of the people that you're working with. Um, and you know, I've worked with some who've been dismissive early on. They've warmed to it, but you don't waste their time with good evidence. You know, you don't make sure you're, you're gonna, you've got the opportunity to use it. Only use it when you need to. So sort of you know, um, hold your fire until you need to, I suppose. Is it a case of figuring out 
type of coach, yeah. whether they're grass or tables, whether they're yeah, well, on the fly corridor conversations versus yeah, absolutely. And don't and one thing, don't just give them perpetual information with no meaning. So, like I said, know when to give the information is mm. important. Um, and but most of the decision making, and you'd say, Darren, now in, in well developed high performance systems are made with the medical sports science teams before it gets to the coach, right? Mm. The collective decisions, um, and that's evolved a lot from say 15 years ago, where you'd get closer straight to the coach. Now it goes through the medical departments, and then it's usually a high performance manager who will delay that, relay that information. Um, I think we need to accept and understand where sports science fits into it, though. It's a decision support tool, not a decision-making tool. Mm. Very important. Very important. And any particular coaches? I mean, you mentioned uh, Brian Smith and Kevin Sheedy. I mean, were, were they the best you've, you've worked with as far as understanding and, and, and put in relationship with sports science? Oh, listen, there's a lot of different coaches, a lot of different approaches that have, you know, some have been really data-driven. Um, recently, Brendan Bolton was really Brendan was really good, um, particularly um, when he started. Um, we've got, uh, who else have we got? That I'm trying to go, I've been working with a few at Colton in the last 10 years, we've had a few coaches. Um, <laughs> um, it depends, there's more the high-performance managers that I, that I work with, but most of the coaches are open-minded, I've got to be honest. Very few have said, no, that, that's rubbish, don't need that. They need to know that it's up to them to make the decision, and we just give them the best information to make the decision from. And and I reckon just based piggybacking on top of that, you might want to talk about uh, sometimes uh, sports scientists that I speak to and fitness coaches, high performance, whatever you want to call them, mm. physios, doctors. Well, why the coach? Why is the coach doing that? Why are they doing that? Like, can't they see that this player is not ready or this player is not right? But I think we can be dismissive of coach choice but yeah. some of your research albeit yeah. in a yeah. you know different sport has proven otherwise yeah or Darren, otherwise. yeah, yeah. So, well some of the, the other the recent stuff peter um that we've been looking at is well does this stuff actually work um and one of the questions steve crowcroft one of my phd students he works in swimming so he works at high level swimming and we we looked over um, over a year of swimming in elite swimmers we monitored them without giving feedback to the coach so and the coach basically was making decisions on whether the athletes were performing better or worse and we had 128 performance changes over the year. We measured all these internal, external loads, heart rate variability, the wellness, to see if the monitoring system could outperform the coach. The long and the short of it is we couldn't quite outperform the coach in predicting performance change. You might say that swimming, it's pretty easy to predict performance because they go up and down a 50-metre pool back and forth in the small group of athletes. But it was a really good case study to show, well, let's understand that we don't outperform necessarily coaches but there were cases where we could use to inform or challenge the decision making of coaches so we use that no that was a case that you probably couldn't do in football for example you couldn't measure a group of guys for a year and not give any feedback to a coach and measure injury or, or, or um, performance but what it did show is that we need to be respectful of expertise and intuition of coaches um, because that's their job they've developed it and uh, uh, their expertise just as sports scientists sports medicine people develop their expertise and they're about performance um, i'd be fascinated to see if we could do that if injury but mm. uh, that's like the discussion we had earlier managing a, a controlled trial with athletes real athletes with no interventions probably unethical um yeah yeah but just that was what we're interested in how much are we really adding to the coach's decisions and uh, we firmly sit in the decision support system not not making the decisions of what we've got all those years you've been bagging coaches brookie yeah, well we should start bagging the sports sports scientists um, well, what i must say though peter is uh coaches can also get carried away with their own intuition and expertise um 
you know, why do you, they're experts and why are they experts is because we've called them experts. Okay, so you, that, that's why you're an expert. That's what defines an expert. Um, All right, fine. an expert goes unfairly, they can get out of control. Okay, yes. Yeah. Final question. We're running out of time, unfortunately, but just one last question and, and jump in too, Burjo, as well. I mean, 10 years from now, 2030, what's, what's going to be the, the big thing in sports science? Uh, then take us through the, to that. And apart from Burjo having even less hair, I mean, what's I, going yeah, to be happening say, in Justin, 2030? A bit of advanced hair for Burjo. Um, <laughs> Um, the big thing in sports science, well, if we're being futuristic about it, it would be probably um, implantable, wearables, you know, if we're getting really futuristic about it. But I actually go, I'm a bit more pragmatic than that. I think we'll go back and well, hopefully we'll have a good balance of a systems-based approach, you know, have a better understanding of the complexities of the contextual factors around programs, how we can, for example, in football, how we can better understand technical and technical aspects how we can understand those and, and we can measure how players are suited to those in the future. So we're more complementary to coaching. I'd, I'd hope that would happen. Yeah, I agree totally. I think uh, there's too much noise around. Uh, and let's let's take, we've spoken about AFL and Lee, let's take soccer or football. Um, around the physical components of football, it's largely irrelevant um, because it's it's purely a tactical game and, yep. and players who... Um, uh, might not produce the physical output of others, uh, but have a massive tactical... They can play. Yeah, influence on the game through creating space and things like that. So I think we'll be able to quantify that a bit easier. I think from a from a technical point of view, the wearables will come in and yeah. we'll be able to assess respiration rate and perspiration, things like that. Um, how it affects performance, who knows? Who knows if it will, but it'll be sexy. And I'd like to actually measure performance, right? Wouldn't that be good? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's happening anytime soon, but that, that's what I think. Rookie um, is where we're going, and those who get the uh, a better understanding of the impact of the mental side of the game on physical, I think, will we'll get ahead of the curve. Yeah, I totally agree. Skill acquisition as as a science will improve, you know, in terms of understanding that in, in the coaching science. For sure. Well, we're all in agreement, said. Well, <laughs> that's great. Aaron, thank you very much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. It's been uh, fascinating. I'm sure any young sports scientist uh, listening would have uh, would have learned an awful lot from uh, from both of you, really. But we really appreciate uh, you giving up your time. And, um, yeah, we'll uh, look forward to seeing whether your uh, predictions come true. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Berger. Thanks, Kuti.